Welcome to Tribe Talk's exclusive podcast series in which we talk over multiple episodes with Dr. Daniel Gordis about the heart and soul of Israel as expressed through its history, culture, diverse and vibrant populations, and its innovations. Each 20-minute episode provides a deep understanding of Israel's complexities from the birth of Zionism to the present day. Dr. Gordis, Senior Vice President and Koret Distinguished Fellow at Shalem College in Israel, is the author of more than 10 books and is a widely read columnist in Israel and American media. TribeTalk.org is an information and resource hub for Jewish young adults. It's uniquely designed to give students the tools they need to wisely choose colleges and to address anti-Semitism and feel empowered in their Jewish identity from before they go off to college and through their college years and beyond. And now, Dr. Gordis. Hi. In our last episode, we covered the Six-Day War in June 1967 and the tremendous lightning victory in Israel tripling its size in six quick days. In this segment, we're going to cover the 1973 Yom Kippur War. But before we get there, we need to talk about what happened between June 1967 and October 1973. When the war was over, even though there was a great internal debate in Israel about what to do with the lands that Israel had captured, there is some public suggestion on the part of Israelis to local Arab leaders, let's make a deal. You recognize our right to exist, you accept our being here, and we'll now begin to talk about what's called land for peace. We'll give you back the land, you give us peace. Not every Israeli thought that was a great idea, but there was certainly a tremendous amount of exploration of that idea. And the leaders of the Arab countries go to Khartoum not long after the end of the Six-Day War, and they come back with the very famous Khartoum resolution, no peace, no recognition, no negotiations. We will be back. We are not recognizing you. We do not accept the fact that you're here. No land for peace. Internally, though, Israelis are feeling secure and confident in a way that they never, ever have before. And Yitzhak Rabin, who had actually been out of the country for a good part of this period because he'd been in the ambassador in Washington, said when he came back during this period, he actually didn't even recognize Israel. It was a country that was confident in ways that he'd never seen. Those old days of socialist austerity with everybody living very simply, that was all gone. Israelis were living better. Israeli politicians and leaders were living much better. And in one major development, which was a change from what David Ben-Gurion had always wanted, because he wanted generals in the army and politicians in politics, Israeli generals started to enter politics. It's true in America, of course. Also around that time, Dwight Eisenhower becomes the president of the United States. It's not unheard of anywhere. But Israel's changing. And what's going on in this particular period is what's called in Hebrew the conceptia, which is obviously a bastardized English word, which means conception. Conception, though, in the sense of a false conception. Israelis really believe that they are impregnable, that they are not touchable, that there's nothing the Arabs can do to them. I mean, if we did that to them in six days, there is no way that they're going to ever attack us again. Israel builds along the Suez Canal, which is now its southern border, on the other side of which is Egypt. It builds what's called the Barlev Line, which was a hugely fortified series of uh, walls and tunnels and trenches and so on and so forth. There was a lot of debate inside the military brass whether the Barlev Line was a good idea or a bad idea. Some people felt the Barlev Line would hold the Egyptians at bay long enough for troops to reach the south if it ever happened that Egypt would be so stupid 
as to attack Israel. And a lot of other people, including Ariel Sharon, said the Barlev line is a terrible idea because it's not going to hold the Egyptians back at all. And it's going to only give us a very, very short-sighted sense of protection. In 1970, we're still in the middle, between 67 and 73, Nasser is still alive, and he invites Nahum Goldman, who's the head of the World Zionist Organization, to come to Cairo. Nasser apparently says to Nahum Goldman, the head of the World Zionist Organization, come to Cairo. I want to talk to you about the possibility of making peace. By this point, Israel's prime minister is Golda Meir. Israel, of course, has a national leader, prime minister, long before America ever will, because America still hasn't had one. And uh, Golda Meir, who's the prime minister, says to Nathan Goldman, don't go. It's a trap. So there is some overture, perhaps, we don't know, but perhaps some overture from Egypt to Israel in 1970. Golda Meir, the prime minister, says don't go. And there might have been other overtures during that period, and Golda's simply not interested. She says, why should I negotiate with them? We are impregnable. There's nothing that they can do to touch us. We'll negotiate with them when we're good and ready to negotiate with them. Don't forget, Golda Meir is a prime minister from the Labour Party. She is still part of the left, part of the party of Dayan and David Ben-Gurion and so on and so forth. Nasser dies of a heart attack and he is replaced by Anwar Sadat, who along with Nasser had been one of the army officers who had overthrown King Farouk. If pan-Arabism is dying when Nasser dies of his heart attack, something else, though, is developing. That Palestinian Liberation Organization, which had developed in 1964, is now beginning to be much more of a force. And Palestinians are beginning to use terrorism internationally in addition to around Israel. They're the ones who basically invent airline hijackings. More or less, it's their invention. Uh, and all of the security that we're familiar with pre-9-11, in which it was still very hard to get the gates and so on and so forth, and you had to go through metal detectors, that's all really a response to Islamic terror and hijackings long before anybody had ever heard of Osama bin Laden or anything of the sort. And Arafat takes control of the PLO, as we said, and he says the following very explicitly. We are not concerned with what took place in June 1967, or with eliminating the consequences of the June War. The Palestinian Revolution's basic concern is the uprooting of the Zionist entity from our land and liberating it. Again, the same thing that they've all been saying all the way through, but now there is an occupation. Now Israel does control the West Bank. Now Arafat is the leader of the Palestine Liberation Organization. But what does liberation mean? He says it himself. Liberation means ending the Jewish state. That's part of the background picture. Anwar Sadat now heads Egypt, and he is a very smart guy. He has no illusion that he can destroy Israel. He doesn't really want to destroy Israel, but he is intent on restoring Egypt's honor. And as far as he's concerned, Israel holding on to the Sinai Peninsula, which had been Egypt prior to 1967, is a huge stain on Egypt's honor, and that has to end. Pan-Arabism is gone, but he loosely coordinates with Jordan and with Syria, and they agree that they're going to attack on Yom Kippur, which is a day in which Israelis were typically very much you know, not on the radio and not listening to the news and doing whatever they were doing, but it was a very typically very peaceful day in Israel. And again, just like the Six-Day War is a very complicated war that we didn't really go into the details of all the battles, the same thing is going to be true now in the Yom Kippur War. We're going to talk a little bit about how it started 
and then really how it ends and where the Middle East is at the end of the war, why the battles take place first in the north, and then the battles move to the south and all of that. There are books that have been written about this war. It's much too detailed for us to uh, go into. Israeli intelligence is picking up a tremendous amount of indications in all different sorts of ways that the Arabs, mostly the Egyptians and the Syrians, are moving massive amounts of troops and weaponry. Israel even has a spy whose name is Marwan Ashraf, who was Nasser's son-in-law, married to Nasser's daughter, is apparently spying for Israel, a fascinating book about it called The Angel. But in any event, Ashraf is also alerting his contacts in the Israeli intelligence apparatus that Egypt is going to attack. He gives dates and so on and so forth. But Israelis just refuse to believe it. And there are lots of people, even in the intelligence community and among the military brass, who say that's just ridiculous. They are not going to attack us. Look at what we did six years ago. That's the conceptia. But Egypt and Syria are mobilizing more and more and more troops, and war breaks out on Yom Kippur. Many people who've written about that day tell of that they're in synagogue, and all of a sudden they hear the air raid sirens going off, and they can't imagine, what is that? Is that a mistake? Is it an accident? Is it a technical malfunction? But then people begin to turn on radios, and they hear all the units being called back to their bases and so forth, and Israel quickly mobilizes 200,000 reservists. But those 200,000 reservists are up against 300,000 Syrian troops, 850,000 Egyptian troops. They are outnumbered six to one. And because of this conceptia, this feeling that they are impregnable, they're invincible, nothing can happen to them, people talk about going to war in 1967, getting to their base and all the equipment didn't work. The rifles were falling apart, things were rusted, nobody had trained. The Israeli army had gotten a little bit too confident and it is a disastrous war. In the first days of the war, it is not at all clear that Israel is going to survive. In the first hours, Moshe Dayan tells the brass, don't worry about it, it's nothing. Our casualties will not reach even the hundreds. They'll remain in the tens, but hundreds, we're certainly not gonna lose. In the end, Israel lost 3,000 soldiers in the more or less three weeks of the Yom Kippur War and barely desperately clawed its way back to the borders that it had ended the 1967 war in. At a certain point, that very confident Moshe Dayan, who had said, don't worry, we're not even going to lose 100 men, was going to go to the radio, apparently, and talk about the fall of the Third Temple. And it was only when Golda Meir, who was the Prime Minister, got wind of this, she said, no, no general of mine is going on the radio to talk about the fall of the Third Temple, and she forbade him from going on the radio. But Dayan was convinced that it was over. Many Israeli generals were convinced that it was over. The Egyptians made it way into the Sinai Desert. The Syrians were poised. They had crossed the Golan Heights. They were poised to slice through the Galilee at the southern tip of the Golan Heights, which would have severed Israel in two, which would have been the beginning of the end. But as we said, the army actually performed very admirably, even though it lost a huge number of planes at the beginning and a huge number of tanks. The army performed very admirably in the latter parts of the war. Um, and was able to encircle the Egyptian Third Army in the Sinai Desert, making it clear that they could have slaughtered them, chose not to, uh, but got back to the Suez Canal, pushed the Syrians back uh, in the Golan Heights, and, as we said, got back to the same borders that Israel had left 1967 with. The question is, 
Did Israel win or lose the war? Did Sadat win or lose the war? Now, Israelis felt devastated after the war. There are harrowing, harrowing videos of kibbutzim where a coffin is brought back to a kibbutz on a jeep, and it's followed by another coffin on another jeep, and another coffin on another jeep, and another coffin, and another coffin, and another coffin, all to the same kibbutzim. Thousands of kids in a relatively small country meant that there were kibbutzim that had had inconceivable numbers of soldiers killed from the very same kibbutz. The sense of confidence gives way to a sense of absolute self-doubting, self-loathing, and obviously fury at the government and at the military brass. So on a certain level, Israel wins the war militarily because it's successful in pushing the Egyptians and the Syrians back to where they'd started, but it loses the war spiritually, if one can say that. Israelis are devastated by the war. I argue, actually, in my book about Israel's history, that Israel never recovers from it. That to this very day, Israelis are still shattered in a very, very deep way by how blind they had been to their very real vulnerabilities. And I think that that actual sense of ongoing vulnerability continues to haunt Israel uh, to this very day. How about Sadat? Did he win or lose? Well, he lost the war as far as the army is concerned, right? His army pushed far into the, into the Sinai Desert, but it gets repelled by Israel very effectively. Um, and at the end of the day, had he not signed a ceasefire, his third army would have been absolutely wiped out by Israel. But remember, Sadat's goal was not to destroy the Jewish state. Sadat's goal was to end the mark of shame that Egypt had suffered because Israel controlled the Sinai Desert. And we will talk about this in a later segment, but in 1977, he is going to go address the Knesset. In 1978, he and Menachem Begin are going to get the Nobel Prize for negotiating a peace deal in which Israel agrees to give back the Sinai, and Israel will actually give back the Sinai in 1982. So just five years after this war, which Sadat ostensibly lost, Israel and Egypt sign a deal, and Israel agrees to give back the Sinai Peninsula, which was exactly what Sadat wanted. So there's a way in which diplomatically, Sadat got exactly what he wanted out of the war. A clear loser of the war was Golda Meir. Israel establishes a commission to investigate all of the shortfalls of both the political and the military leadership. The country is enraged. Uh, and there's an Agranat commission that's put together named for one of the judges who runs the commission. Golda Meir, who is the prime minister, of course, is rebuked but not held ultimately responsible. The people who are held responsible are the three men who were at the helm of the army, David Elazar, who was the chief of staff, Eli Zaira, who was the chief of intelligence, and Shmuel Gonen, who was the head of the Southern Command. Uh, these are all young men when they are running the army at this stage of their lives. Shmuel Gonen, after the Agronaut report comes out, uh, leaves Israel for Africa, basically never comes back, and dies of a heart attack at the age of 61. David Elazar dies of a heart attack at the age of 51, three years after the war. All of these men carry on their shoulders a burden of tremendous guilt, which destroys their lives. It also, of course, destroys Golda Meir's political career. Uh, she will resign the prime ministership shortly after this happens, and she therefore sets the stage 
for the beginning of the changing of the political guard in Israel, the fall of labor, and the rise of Likud. And it's the changing of that political guard to which we'll come in our next segment. Thank you for joining us. We encourage you to listen to the next podcast in this series with Dr. Gordis and remind you to visit our website, tribetalk.org, for more resources.